Well, tonight we are going to continue loosely on the theme of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and look at some different uh, aspects concerning that. And uh, next week we will show, um, I'll show another one of the Jim Cimbala teaching videos next Wednesday. And then that next Wednesday we go on our uh, little hiatus, our break for uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we will not be back on Wednesdays until January 10th. That's the second Wednesday of the year, but uh, that's what we normally do, and that gives everybody a break, especially workers and whatnot in the back, and uh, so we take a little break uh, right after Thanksgiving and uh, for the month of December, but don't miss next week. We'll be back here next week, and uh, we'll finish that. So with that, in thinking about how I kind of was wanting to uh, continue what we did a little bit last week, uh, I didn't want to get too far off into some areas that we're going to need to cover because um, uh, I'd planned uh, for the Jim Cimbala teaching, the third one, third or fourth one uh, next week, and then uh, we'd have that big break, so I didn't want to kind of start something and not be able to, to finish it out. Next year, when we come back, We'll spend, Lord willing, uh, from January, February, March, April, as long as we need to. And uh, we want to look at different aspects. That's where we'll get into the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's where we'll talk about things like uh, the spiritual gifts. Uh, we'll get in talk a little bit about um, what is tongues. Is that, is that still something, a gift that's available today? What is that? Um, are the gifts as a whole, are those something that we can, uh, as this side of Calvary, this side of the book of Acts, is, are those things that relatively kind of died out over time? Or are the gifts of the Holy Spirit still continuing today? And in what way do they still continue? And what does that look like? And uh, so we'll kind of look at that. and We'll look at some of the different uh, views that that Christians have had and do have, and they will, uh, you know, encourage you to be a Berean, make up your own, not make up your own mind, make up your own mind based on Scripture. But some areas, um, if there, were, if it was so black and white and cut and dried, there wouldn't be any controversy, would there? And so, where do we have agreement? Where do we have some differences? And how, as the body of Christ, do we? kind of uh, reconcile those, or sometimes you don't. Sometimes you, you just have differences of, of views, and that's okay. I mean, if you read the book of Acts, they had different views. I mean, Peter and Paul still were committed to the same core truths of the gospel, but at the same time, they had different perspectives. Paul and Barnabas had different perspectives um, that led to, you know, we don't want to cause division, but, but uh, so it's okay to have different opinions. You always... The only people, there's a difference between unity and uniformity. Cults want uniformity. They want everybody to, you know, carry the same translation and think the same way. And if you don't know the answer, it's whatever my pastor believes, you know. We don't want that. We want you to be a student of the Bible. And you can have unity and not uniformity. We're not here all to be cookie cutters, but... To, to learn, study, and uh, you teach me, and, and don't just take anything I say. Be, you know, get back in the Word and say, well, 
Here's something I read. It might be interesting. And uh, so uh, we want to continue to do that. So in the spirit of doing that, last week kind of rushed off the latter part of last week. And one of the things that um, I thought was important as we were talking about the first part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, loosely using that, was talked about those four Pentecosts. Now, they're not called, the other three aren't called Pentecosts, but the emphasis in talking about the significance of these four outpourings of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, um, and again, I'm not going to go over that, but just want to reference that, that in Acts chapter 2, you had, of course, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the Jews. That was who was there in Jerusalem, those who were uh, obeying and waiting as Jesus admonished uh, his followers, the 120 in the upper room. And so we see the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon the Jews. We see the next group in Acts chapter 8 that were the Samaritans. And so uh, because of the persecution in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, chapter 7, you remember Stephen was martyred, he was stoned, and that's where at the end of Acts chapter 7 we see a little hinge, I call them a little hinge because it kind of like a door opens us up to the next chapter, but it opens us up into introducing Saul of Tarsus, who is the character that we see come on the scene at the end of chapter 7. Remember, he is holding the coats of the, um, those who had stoned uh, Stephen. He wanted to make sure their coats didn't get dirty uh, during the murder. All right, so, um, But that was, uh, you know, by Paul's testimony in Galatians chapter 1, he says, you know, how he tried to destroy the church of God. And it was unsuccessful, and God met him in a dramatic way. But as a consequence of that persecution that was taking place, the church did really what Jesus told them to do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the, the earth. And so uh, they kind of cloistered. They had a nice growing church there of several thousand, 3,000 there in Acts chapter 2. But as a result of persecution, they were... They were forced to flee, really, under uh, persecution uh, circumstances. And so when you come to chapter 8, you see the evangelist or, uh, the, called a deacon, uh, Philip. And Philip went into Samaria. And you know a little bit about Jewish history. You know that Jews uh, went out of their way to avoid Samaritans. Samaritan had a history, uh, as I mentioned, that after... The reign of Solomon when he had uh, his two sons that took power and there eventually was a split, a civil war within the nation of Israel and one uh, part of it, the northern part, split off from the southern part. The southern part called Judah, the northern part called Israel, a little confusing because it's all Israel, but in the north is referred to as Israel in Scripture. And they set up because uh, they did not... And again, I get my Jeroboams and Rehoboams, I get them all mixed up, so I can't tell you which one. But um, one of the Boam brothers, all right? Um, and so uh, they did not want people tracking down to the temple in Jerusalem lest they begin to lose loyalty and get homesick. So they set up the king... They set up an alternative um, 
religion, basically. It had a Jewish flavor to it. They only recognized the first five books of Moses. Um, by the way, if you remember, and I don't, I'm behind on my seasons, but I think it might have been season two. I don't remember. But uh, that under the chosen, that Jesus went into a Samaritan um, synagogue. And if you knew a little of the history of what he was saying, um, and it shows how, and he made some remark about their uh, only recognize the, the books of Moses, and that differentiates them from the uh, Orthodox Jews. And uh, so, Philip, Samaritans were really, in a nice way, were considered half-breeds, uh, and that racism went deep, deep history. You know, when Jesus really wanted to gouge the, his, uh, the Jewish leaders, he, gave, he told a story about the good Samaritan. And just the title of that be like, there is no good Samaritan, you know. And uh, so uh, the Samaritans had a long history of disenfranchised. Uh, what's the word? I want? Disenfranchised. Is that a word? It is a word. It is a word? Did I? Okay. I didn't know if I invented it just then. Disenfranchised. They were separated. Maybe I should just stick with that. Separated uh, and estranged and an Orthodox Jew and I... Assume the Samaritans would, again, walk and go longer routes to avoid each other. I mean, it was just deep-seated racism. That's basically what it is. And so Philip, by going into Samaria, preaching the gospel, and so uh, they received Christ, and, uh, and in order for them to be grafted in and to recognize that they're part of the body of Christ, uh, when the apostles heard that the gospel was being preached in Samaria. I mean, that was like, what? Um, that they sent the big guns. They sent Peter and John to Samaria. And as a consequence of Peter and John in Samaria, the Bible says that when they laid hands upon the believers there in Samaria, now, I want you to pay attention to something here. We have now the receiving of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands, different than what you had in Acts 2. And the reason I draw that out is because uh, we sometimes are very, you know, I was raised in a tradition, and sometimes maybe you were too, where we want to see things kind of in an identical pattern that always happen the same way. And remember, I uh, read in uh, the scripture in John 3 where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit is like the wind, you know, it blows where it wills. You can't see it, you feel it, you, 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 you know, but you can't, you can, how do you lock it in? And he said that that's the move of the Holy Spirit. You know, we want to contain it and say it always has to happen this way. Well, here in Acts chapter 8, we see it different. Now, uh, they became believers, but they had not received the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came, laid hands on them, and the Bible says they received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Now, what I want you to see by looking at those four Pentecosts last week is to see the significance, kind of the big picture. Instead of we get, we've always gotten, I say we, some of us, maybe traditions, have always gotten real focused on Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. We missed the significance of these other historicals. So you got Jews and now you got Samaritans. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, I want you to go into... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the othermost parts of the earth. And you see those four uh, pictures and how the Holy Spirit visited these four groups through uh, Acts uh, 
uh, through the book of Acts. But the importance of these Samaritans, because Jesus was not building a Jewish church. He was not building a Samaritan church. He wasn't building a Gentile church. He was building one church. Okay? So one of the early tensions all throughout the New Testament in the book of Acts, Paul in Galatians, was always the friction between the, the legalists, the law, and how we are made one in Christ. That was always a tension there. Not with the Gentiles, but among the Jews and the converts of Jews to Christ. That was always a tension there. And we kind of, you know, we might kind of just blow that off like, you know, come on guys, get over it, right? But this was, this was embedded into their very identity. Um, and so when Peter and John, the apostles, uh, the ambassadors of Jesus, when they went to Samaria, it was more than just the big guys coming into town. It was, it was symbolic and wanted to communicate to those Samaritans that they have been made part of this body of Christ just as the Jews in Jerusalem. They were not separated. They may have been separated historically, but now in Christ, they are part of the one body. So that, that's a big, significant event, all right? And then you have in Acts chapter 10, you have uh, the uh, Roman centurion Cornelius. And you remember uh, that Peter had a vision and saw all these unclean animals and the Lord in this, this vision, it wasn't a dream, it was a vision, uh, and, and God spoke to him and said, don't uh, take up and eat. And Peter was a good Jewish kid. I mean, he didn't, eat, he didn't go down to Sonny's and eat barbecue ribs, and he didn't go and eat shellfish and lobster. I mean, he, didn't, you know, he, he was kosher because that was so, again, like the Sabbath. That was embedded into their very identity. You know, Jews, interesting, how have they been able to maintain their unique identity, even though the diaspora, which means the dispersion um, from uh, after uh, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and all through the years at one time uh, before the Nazis uh, uh, destroyed uh, the Jews basically in Europe, uh, Poland had the largest concentration of Jews uh, in the world up until that time. And so how were they able scattered all over the world. There's Ethiopian Jews. There's people that adhere to Judaism all over the world. How are they able to maintain their identity? Well, the Sabbath, the kosher, the feast, the fa all these things, you know, locked in their identity. And so Peter had this vision of all these unclean animals. And, of course, the story is that uh, at that time Cornelius was seeking the Lord. The Bible calls him a god fearer or a God-fearing Jew, that means he was a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew, but a God-fearing, uh, God-fearers were those who respected Judaism. They kind of adhered to the law more for ethical teaching, you know, what, what not, but they weren't converted Jews. But they, they recognized that the God of Israel, they were respectful, they, you know, but they weren't full-blooded converts, basically. And so then you have the Holy Spirit being poured out to Cornelius and his household simultaneously. So here the Samaritans, 
they, got, they were saved and, and received Christ, but it was way later before they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to exhibit the gift of tongues and uh, give evidence. But here in Cornelius, they got saved and immediately were filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, if you're looking for a pattern, this isn't going to help you. So now you got this example. Saved and immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and John weren't on, you know, they came, came later. But you see again, God pouring out His Spirit to these God-fearers. And then the last group we have over, and there's some other examples there. Of course, Saul's uh, conversion and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't have any, that's in, um, uh, is that 8 or 9 of Acts? Um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. But, um, but when Paul was converted on the, you know, the road to Damascus and the Lord Jesus appeared before him and God spoke to Ananias uh, uh, and to, to go to him and Ananias, right? Right? Arnie, come on, come on. Yeah, I don't know why. I drew a blank there. And it happens a lot these days. But... Um, but we don't have any evidence uh, that Paul, when it talks about him being filled with the Holy Spirit, we have no recorded evidence that he evidenced in speaking in tongues. My point is, if you're looking for a pattern that is the same way all the way through every time, you're going to be disappointed when you read Acts. And that shouldn't be a discouragement. It should remind us the Holy Spirit, just like all of us and others, the Holy Spirit does what He wills with whoever He wills in whatever way He wills. And so that's where it's always dangerous to say, well, you should always do it this way, or you should always do it that way, or it always follows this pattern. Well, it doesn't always follow that pattern. So in, in Acts chapter 19, you see these Gentiles uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit and coming to faith in Christ, and again, the expansion of the church. So we, anyway, I just remind of those things and uh, called the four Pentecosts. There's only one Pentecost, but I just want you to see that, th that God was building and these, these groups were emblematic of the gospel going to all the world. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, and the same Holy Spirit, the same one church that Jesus was building, they were all part of that church. Because remember, when you have in um, Acts chapter 15... You have that Jerusalem, what they called the Jerusalem Council. And that was that big brouhaha. That's a Greek word, brouhaha. Um, but these Gentiles uh, up in Antioch, they were getting converted. And so there were Judaizers. They were professing Christians, but they still held to the law. They said, no, 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 we can't just, you just can't let anybody come into the church. They've got to become Jews. And so the controversy was, do they need to become Jews, Gentiles? Do they need to be converted as a Jew and then add Christ? Or is Christ sufficient? And so remember they had that big discussion. And after they had all this lengthy debate there in Acts chapter 15, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was tradition says was the local pastor of the Jerusalem church, stood up and gave his mind. And finally Peter said, look, why are we going to impose on them what we can't even keep, right? I mean, like, and basically said, look, send the word back, 
Paul, and I think, did he take Silas or was it Barnabas? Um, to go back, wrote a letter, and uh, tell them to do two things. Abstain from sexual immorality, because there was no moral standards among the Gentiles. And, and to not eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now that was what I call those, that, that last one about the meat sacrificed to idols. That was, a, that was a, uh, an appeal to peaceful accommodation. In other words, that was such a big issue among Jews. Uh, remember in uh, Romans, uh, where is it? On, it's chapter 16 about uh, free, being free uh, that... Some say, look, you know, the meat sacrificed to idols. People familiar with that controversy? Um, back in the day, uh, they would have meat that was used in these pagan ceremonies. And those, uh, whatever it was, London broils, or I don't know what they did. Uh, they were marked down because they were used and put in the fire, you know, of these pagan ritual sacrifices. So they'd sell the meat. It was perfectly good meat. And good other believers and Jews and people that... Uh, that whole concept was abhorrent. How could you, how could you, one, how could you pay money for that meat sacrificed to idols and put that in your mouth? And the others were just saying, look, it's meat. It's all unto the Lord. Who cares? It's, it's, you know, it's like going to Aldi's versus Publix, right? You know, I mean, hey, it's, you know, we hope it's a cow, right? But, but, uh, so there was always going to be these issues and all these cultural issues all going on. So when the apostles told Paul uh, and said, look, go back to the church and tell those Gentile believers that we accept them as one in Christ. Because again, what's, what's God doing in the book of Acts? He's building and showing one church that he's advancing. He said, don't tell them not to, not to eat meat, sacrifice to idols. They were like, just tell them to quit doing it. <laughs> you know, like... like it's, it's like it offends your fellow Jews to such a degree, tell them to do it as an accommodation. You know, does that make sense? You know, kind of like, you know, things that sometimes we do, and you're like, well, I'm free in Jesus. I'm just going to do this, and I don't care who it offends. Well, you should be so free, you're free to not do it. That's how free you should be, if it means accommodating somebody else. And so, and said, abstain from sexual immorality. By the way, it's interesting at that Jerusalem council, what they didn't tell them to do. What they didn't tell them to do. You know, every once in a while, you'll have people that come through here, and they've been, since I've been here, and they want to argue about keeping the seventh-day Jewish Sabbath, that that should be the day of worship. And I said, well, if that's such a big deal, how come those apostles didn't tell those Gentiles and say, oh, hey, and by the way, while you're not eating meat sacrificed to idols and you're not sleeping around... Make sure you keep the Sabbath. He didn't tell them that. Didn't tell them anything about keeping the law because the law and all its codes and all its regulations, Christ ended on the cross. And so we are now one in Christ. So I just want you to see the role of the Spirit being poured out in those four Pentecosts, if you will. Step back from becoming so focused around just Acts chapter 2 and see the bigger picture of what the Spirit was doing in the book of Acts and building His church. So, kind of with that, we're going to get into this. And I, these notes are not exactly the way I would want them. And so, 
uh, I'm I'm not sure what I'll do tonight. So anyway, we'll just kind of we'll just kind of wing it together a little bit. Uh, so let's let's kind of go back and talk about. I want I want to just talk about a little bit about the term baptized or baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and most all the scriptures will be on your paper there. I don't have anything on the screen. Acts 1.5, Jesus said, uh, referring to John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist quoting his words uh, where he said, there will be one that comes after me. I baptize you with water, but there will be one that comes after you who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus quotes that uh, and reminds them that that's getting ready to happen. Okay? That's getting ready to happen. This is Acts 1.5. That's fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. Pretty much all Christians agree, agree with that. And of course, Acts 2, verse 2 is the suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, filled the whole house where the 120 were gathered there sitting. Uh, there they appeared to them divided tongues. That word tongues in there is the word we get dialect, so it uh, refers to actual languages. Uh, di uh, divided tongues as of fire, one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled. Notice it doesn't say baptized, but they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Same thing, okay? Same thing. Baptize, uh, you know this, it, it means to immerse. It means to be um, overwhelmed, if you will. So like number three, I'll just kind of uh, use a numbering system there for kind of my, my thoughts here, but... Uh, baptize, you know, means to immerse. So John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, Luke, all taught that we should be ex uh, that we should expect to be immersed or overwhelmed by the Spirit. Now, let me just say something here. I think I have it later, but I'm just going to say it here. Uh, boy, I really pray. I said, Holy Spirit, I need your help tonight because my brain is like going 18 different directions because I'm trying to cram in different things, and I don't want to do that because. Uh, I don't want to mess anything up. But one thing that is helpful um, when you study the Bible and even on something like this, and we'll talk a little bit about this, is one of the basic beginnings of what you should do. When you open the book of the Bible and you're going to study it. So we're going to, let's say we're going to just study the book of Acts. Um, there's just a couple of basic things you should, you should find out. One, who was it written to? That will help you. That will help you understand something and interpret. But it also is helpful to know who wrote it as well. So in the case of the book of Acts, uh, it was Mr. Luke, a companion of the Apostle Paul. He also wrote what we call the Gospel according to Luke. This was a companion book that he wrote. And so the important thing when you read the Bible is to recognize that you have 66 books, the whole Bible, but each of those books are composed of a variety of different, what we would say, genres of literature, okay? You have, uh, you have history, you have narrative, you have um, what, is some, what is called apocalyptic language, and I mean, like Daniel has apocalyptic, meaning... Uh, futuristic or visions, the book of Revelation, Ezekiel, okay? So you have to, one of the biggest mistakes I ever did was I was teaching a Bible study in Illinois, and you know, I just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, whatnot, and I tried to teach the book of Ezekiel that way. 
big mistake. You can't, because really it's a series of visions, you know, and boy, I was like three weeks into it thinking, how do I get out of this mess I've created? I'll never get through this. Same way with oftentimes the book of Revelation, uh, because we tend to want to, and that's why we like going to Paul. We like Ephesians and Philippians, you know, because it's just you know, kind of has that flow. We like the, the gospel. They had that flow. And then we read these books and we're like, what? So it's helpful to know what kind of literature and whatnot. So when we talk about terms like baptism of the Spirit, being filled with the, the Spirit, and why there appears um, to be sometimes a different emphasis with Paul, if you want to flip over to uh, number six on your outline, I know I may be skipping around a little bit, but number five, it says controversy about when the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs in the believer's life has been a long, ongoing debate among Christians. You know, within the body of Christ, the when, 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 when is a person baptized in the Holy Spirit? When do they receive, and there's terms that have been, you know, we'll use the fullness or the filling. And so uh, in church history, you have... Historically, you have, like, for example, through the Wesleyan line, John Wesley, uh, they, they were convinced that the baptism or the fullness of the Spirit or the empowering of the Holy Spirit, um, that that came kind of as a, uh, something that a believer would seek after, after conversion. And it would be, sometimes you may have heard this term, a second work uh, following conversion. Sometimes in uh, other groups, they would, even Wesleyan and Pentecostal groups, they would call it a third work because they would, they would say salvation uh, is when you receive Christ. And then sanctification, they would teach that sanctification is a distinct work apart from salvation. So uh, denomination I, I'm uh, uh, still a part of uh, that they will have, or and it, again, it's, it's, it's changing, but they will have and ask people, well, when were you sanctified? And really, you're sanctified when you're converted. I mean, that's when you're sanctified, but you're become immersed in the process of sanctification. You know, I'm saved, I'm being saved, and ultimately, when I'm glorified, I will be saved, right? So, but meaning, when was your experience of sanctification? Now, that's distinct from being filled with the Holy Spirit that some of the older Pentecostal groups or even older Wesleyan holiness groups. Anybody have a background in Wesleyan holiness movements? So is any of that familiar, kind of those second and third? And again, it's, it's, it's a variety, so there's all, all different varieties. But they would see those things as distinct, that you tarry, you wait for the Holy Spirit, and that may come may come weeks, maybe months, maybe years, maybe whatever, but they see all those things as distinct. Um, later on with the Pentecostal movement at the turn of the uh, 20th century and in, in the 1900s, you had uh, groups, Pentecostal denominations that were started like the Assemblies of God. By the way, the Assemblies of every, uh, for example, the Church of God out of Cleveland, Tennessee, their roots come out of the Wesleyan line. Wesleyan meaning Methodist, Wesleyan, Nazarene is a Wesleyan denomination. Uh, Wesleyan roots, they kind of trace their heritage back to John Wesley. And, of course, again, holiness movements, Nazarene, um, 
Salvation Army has Wesleyan theology roots, Church of God, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, because there's a Cleveland, there's Church of God Anderson. That's different. They don't make sure you get your Church of God's right. Um, they'll slap you, all right? So uh, they won't slap you. But um, so they come out of those roots. Assemblies of God had an experience of a of Baptist. So the assembly of God, the assemblies of God, their roots of coming into the Pentecostal movement come from more of a Baptistic group that came into the experience of Pentecostalism. Okay, uh, and then you have all different varieties um, that belong to that. Uh, and so there was that emphasis about the timing, the when, and there's always been that controversy. But it's interesting that when you dabble a little bit in church history, you'll find that a lot of people in the church, in church history, use the term baptism of the Holy Spirit, but didn't necessarily mean the same thing that, say, a Pentecostal would mean by that. For example, R.A. Torrey. Anybody ever heard of the name R.A. Torrey? Used to be uh, back in, I don't know if it was the maybe early 1900s, but R.A. Torrey, uh, among others, uh, wrote a book and taught on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And R.E. Torrey was one of the long-term uh, presidents of Moody Bible Institute. And if you know anything about Moody Bible Institute, there ain't nothing Pentecostal about Moody Bible Institute. But he wrote a book and taught on the baptism, the fullness of the experience. It's an excellent book. But it's not, it doesn't teach about speaking in tongues or anything, but it's an excellent book that speaks about the fullness and, and, and thirsting after the Holy Spirit. But I'm just saying, there's a lot of groups. That's why it's hard to pinpoint sometimes people with terms and this group and that group. Because every time you do that, it's like, what's that game? Whack-a-mole? You know? So as soon as you get your denominations, and they did it, then another one, like all these, so you just, big church. Big church, a lot of people. But what I started to say about the book of Acts, it's important is when you read it, we have different people, different authors, and each of those authors have different um, perspectives. If you pick up a book, John Grisham. You like John Grisham, right? And you know I like John Grisham. I don't get time to read John Grisham, but I'm still working my way through the book he gave me. But, I don't, you know, but they all have a purpose in why they write what they do. They have plots. They have storylines. They have... Good guys, bad guys, you know, that's what authors do, right? And if you, if you read a novel, have you ever read a novel, and you're like, I, I'm, I'm three chapters in this, and I have no clue of what's going on. And you're like, okay, the book works for me. I don't work for the book, so I, it's like a movie. I paid my kids to leave movies many times. I leaned over and I said, I'll give you ten bucks if we can walk out right now. They're like, you're on. <laughs> that was, money has a way of... Doing wonders. By the way, my son and daughter-in-law, my grandkids will be here Sunday. So uh, some of you that'll be here will get to meet them. But no, I'm kidding. But, um, uh, but Luke, Luke has a purpose in why he wrote what he did. So uh, remember, in fact, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. just want to show you this. Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> Acts 
hang on to this outline because I have a feeling we're probably not going to get all what I want to do, but we'll just, uh, I may do a little bit next week, but maybe not, so. But Acts chapter 1, notice how he begins, the former account, now stop right there, the former account I made, the former writings I made. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the previous book called the Gospel According to Luke, that he was writing it for this individual that we're not sure exactly who Theophilus was, whether he was a very uh, educated, noble, or somebody that perhaps financed uh, Luke and some of the travels. But Luke, being a physician, is writing a history about Jesus. And so he says, the former book, the former account I made, he's referring to the book of Luke, now, he says, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. That's, that was the previous. You with me? That was the Gospel of Luke, what Jesus began. So that's giving you a little heads up that Jesus began, but the book of Acts is Jesus continued. Jesus just began his work, but it's going to be continued in this account of what Luke is going to write. So he says, that former work that I wrote, Mr. Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, that's the ascension, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles, all right, so he's setting those 12 up, whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, having seen uh, by them during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then he goes in about being assembled together. But I want you to see right there at the beginning some things that give us a little indicator of Luke and things that are important for him that he's going to write about. He says, obviously he's talking about Jesus and those, those, in those proofs that he gave and uh, the Gospel of Luke and the accounts, uh, the miracles and the works that Jesus did, those, and talks about the resurrection, those infallible proofs. But he says also in verse 2, he right there sets it up that he mentions the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 3, he talks about the kingdom of God. Those are two big themes in Luke, whether it's the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts, which is just the second volume of Luke's writings, the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God. Now, here's what historically has happened. And I allude to this a little bit in the notes there, but I'm just, for time's sake, I'm just going to paraphrase it under uh, number six. Is what has often, I think, happened and bred a lot of confusion throughout church history when there's a study about the Holy Spirit the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, all those things, is I think what has happened, and this seems to be of something that uh, New Testament, godly New Testament scholars have uh, really, uh, in the past probably 30 years, uh, is way, way more uh, out there than there used to be, but they began to take Luke seriously as a theologian. See, the emphasis always that Paul, and you probably were taught this in your, your hermeneutics, that we can't, we can't derive, and I've mentioned this a few weeks back, we can't build theology based upon 
the narrative portions of Scripture. Because it's narrative, meaning it was once for all time. We can't say that what happened in Acts 2 or Acts 10 or 19, whatever, those were unique. So we can't build doctrine and can't build precedent and saying, wait, look at what happened in Acts chapter 2, and why can't we have that same... Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. We need to build doctrine, meaning our instruction and teaching for the church, primarily on the what they call the um, uh, teaching portions, primarily the Apostle Paul, the, the epistles, the letters. Because what is Paul primarily doing in just about everything he does and writes? He's writing to who? Churches, for the most part. Right? He's correcting issues. He's dealing with, you know, Timothy, how you should set yourself in order, how you should establish the church, all those things. Those are things where we should build our doctrine. And part of what goes with that is build our doctrine of the Holy Spirit by what Paul teaches. It's not saying that what Luke writes about in Acts didn't happen. No, it happened. But that was that was a unique historical, one-time account. We can't expect that today or in the church today. Now, here's the problem with that. Is it right away, and by the way, that's, that's a view that my heroes, John MacArthur and uh, Charles Ryrie and Chuck Swindoll and those that are, I would say, are very heavy um, dispensational views. Not all dispensationalists are necessarily uh, uh, has, a, has a differing view of the, the Holy Spirit, but many of those that are uh, popular today and writers and whatnot, but that's a very traditional evangelical view of Scripture. And I keep pointing to Arnie because Arnie went to Moody Bible Institute. And I keep knowing like that would be a fair statement, right? Descriptive, yeah. Yeah. So the problem with is, you remember where Paul says in Romans, and I think maybe one of the Corinthians, it says that those things, I read it Sunday, so I should know off the top of my head, but that the things of the past were written for our what? Instruction, our benefit. So, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that everything is game on that was written in the past that was written for us to learn, to be instructed by. He wasn't making some of these false dichotomies between, oh, well, that was descriptive instead of, what was it again? I got it mixed up. Prescriptive versus descriptive. Now, prescriptive, prescription. Here's a prescription, how you're to act in the church. Philippians 2, 4. There's your prescription. Description, they're just describing what happened. But we don't, we're not taking that as normative. You with me? All right, stay with me. But the Bible never makes that artificial category. That type of thing is just a man-made uh, category in order to support a particular perspective of understanding the Bible in a lot of different areas. I'm not saying there everybody's sitting around with a 
you know, candles in the dark or nothing, you know, come up with evil plots. It's just, we have a lot of that. We have things you say, well, how did you get to that? Well, let me, you're piecing together with, you know, scripture and, and, and uh, you know, super glue and, and some, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you, got, you, you have to go through, instead of just going a straight line, well, here's how I, here's how we think about this issue. In fairness, sometimes when you want to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, wouldn't it be easier, Keith, if the doctrine of the Trinity was just like two or three verses and you're like, okay, there you go. It isn't that way. You've got to draw from inferences. And so I'm not saying that that is bad, but when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the relevancy and the continuation, we have to say, well, wait a minute, maybe Luke, maybe Luke was trying to drive home a perspective that was different than the Apostle Paul. They weren't contradicting each other, but they just had two perspectives because they had different goals and audiences they were writing to. For example, another, here's, a, here's an example. You might have heard this. That there is a contradiction with James and Paul. James, faith without works is dead, right? Paul, justify, we're justified by faith. Not by works. Well, you got a contradiction. No, you don't. James wouldn't disagree with anything Paul said. And Paul wouldn't disagree with anything that James said. But what are they doing? They have two different audiences, different issues, different problems, and putting different emphases on areas so that when you understand what they're saying and what they're not saying, there's no contradiction. You with me? So we talk about some of these differences, and, and here's what has often been the traditional view, is that Paul talks about, and you have the script, some scriptures there. Look under number six, Paul, that, that Paul makes an emphasis of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is more of an emphasis that we receive the Holy Spirit when we are saved. You with me? That, was, that, that tends to be Paul's uh, leaning into. For example, uh, and they're all there in your outline. Galatians 3.2. Paul said, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So he says, again, that the, he presumes that they received the Spirit. He's correcting them. But did you receive it by works or by faith? Uh, verse 5 of Galatians 3. Therefore... He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Again, he's presuming and speaking to those that he is, even though he's correcting, he's speaking with a certain, I don't want to use the word presumption, but acceptance that they are believers and by virtue of being believers, they are, have the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see that Paul, and again, these are just sampling, so there's trying to just for time's sake. Paul tends to emphasize the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit. He doesn't use the word baptism. That's only used a few times. We use it a lot. But Paul makes the emphasis that the Spirit, let me look, look at that last one there, Romans 8 9, assumes that if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. 
He says, verse uh, Romans 8, 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Meaning, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not born again. And if you're not born again, you're not a believer. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So, Paul connects the Holy Spirit with conversion. You with me? That they're one and the same. That we receive, that we are baptized. In fact, the scripture that is, um, look under number four. Me skipping around. No, that's wrong. Wrong, sorry. Um, Oh, for crying out loud, what did I do with it? Yeah, wait. No, that's not it. Oh, yeah, it is. Okay, number four. Sorry. Number four, the scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. I was looking below that at verse 3. Okay, this gives you what Paul, he says, For by one, look, pay, go, well, read slowly. For by one spirit, for by one spirit, Holy Spirit, we were. Were is what? Past tense. We were all what? Immersed, baptized, overwhelmed by the Spirit into one body. One Spirit, all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. So again, Paul connects the baptism, if you will, the immersion, the reception of the Holy Spirit as part of that regenerative work that a person experiences when they are converted. You can't be saved. In fact, uh, right below that, uh, uh, number 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. Meaning, nobody who's genuinely converted calls Jesus a curse. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except... They're not saying, say the verbiage. He's saying no one can have a born-again experience except by the Holy Spirit, you see? So the Holy Spirit is indispensable. You can't, you can't be regenerated. You can't be born again without the Holy Spirit. So it's not really accurate to speak of being saved and not being f- baptized in the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm using baptism, baptized, to speak about being immersed. Because you see a pattern take place that for the believer, the emphasis and command is not to be baptized by the Spirit, because that's something that I would suggest seems to indicate that is part of the salvation work, that we are immersed in Christ, one baptism, one Lord. But the Bible does speak about The filling of the Spirit. Now let me go back and talk about the difference between Luke and Paul. Paul's making, tends to make, and this is very general, but Paul tends to connect the baptism of the Spirit, the immersion of the Holy Spirit, connects that with salvation of when we come to faith in Christ. We are immersed in the Spirit, immersed in Christ, and we are overwhelmed by the Spirit in Christ, okay? Luke, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, whether it's Luke, the Gospel, or the book of Acts, 
Luke makes a lot of emphasis of the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't necessarily speak of the Holy Spirit in connecting it with the salvation experience. He's connecting it with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So you've got, and again, being very generalized, but you have these two twin, and they're not contradicting each other. It's not an either or. It's both and. We are saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit, and yet the Bible speaks of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Not as a one-time, well, I got filled with the Holy Spirit in 1974. You know, at whatever. No, it's, it's, look at all the, the scriptures about, again, I don't have them all written here, but you remember Paul talks in Galatians about walking in the Spirit, about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, number 13 in your outline. Ephesians 5.18 is a command, never a command about being baptized. And again, I don't want to make too much hay and splitting these words up, but I'm just trying to open perhaps your curiosity in saying, instead of trying to read everything as a one-size-fits-all, maybe I should take each author, Luke or Paul, on their own terms and what they are emphasizing and teaching about the Holy Spirit and recognize what they are saying, but not as a way of saying it's contradictory, but it's complementary. You see, Luke speaks more of the Holy Spirit as an empowerment, right? Luke speaks in language that's very reminiscent to the Old Testament work of the Holy... Remember how many times we, when we were studying about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, how many times the Holy Spirit rushed upon the person or rushed in the, you know, in that empowering? Well, Luke seems to really identify with that because he he speaks about the Holy Spirit fell and came as a mighty rushing wind and, and speaks of the empowerment, even special occasions like the Apostle Peter. Look over to Acts chapter 4. So here you have in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John arrested. You have uh, verse 23. Um, you have those that are being persecuted. They're praying for boldness. And then in verse 31, as a result of this prayer that they're praying not for escape, but they're praying for God to give them more persecution, so they'll speak the word more boldly, verse 29. And then they say in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Well, well, I thought that happened back in Acts chapter 2 with these guys. And now you're saying they're filled again with the Holy Spirit? It's not contradicting. contradicting. It's just saying that the filling and the work and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is a continuous expectation for God's people that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are not to be, as Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, disorderliness, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. He doesn't say be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Again, I just want you to consider that that term baptism, the reason there's such sometimes differences 
and this is overly simplistic, is sometimes we are hung up on our terms and semantics when if we begin to understand the terms as they were understood in context of what Luke was saying about the Holy Spirit versus what Paul is saying about the Holy Spirit, they're not contradicting each other. They're really complimenting each other, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit that is a part of our regeneration, of being saved, about being born again. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The evidentiary working of the Holy Spirit should be evidence in moral behavior, in ethics, and all those things. So that's why, again, we get hung up with evidence of tongues, and yet the Bible doesn't place that kind of evidence as heavy as my Pentecostal background has made emphasis upon that. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not even saying it's not current and available. I'm not even saying that. I'm saying where does Paul put his weight is up on the character and the fruit of the Spirit Love, joy, peace, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things, right? Talks about the evidence of the Spirit. You go over to Mr. Luke and you read Acts and the Holy Spirit is falling and empowering and giving uh, impetus and energy uh, from, from heaven to do exploits and miracles and wonders. That's Luke's big thing. I'm not saying it's Paul, not Paul's big thing. Because when you read Ephesians 19, you see miracles and signs and all those things going on in Ephesus as well. Don't get into a Holy Spirit ghetto. Don't get into just a one little track way of only understanding something. Remember, John 3, what is it, verse 3, the Holy Spirit's like the wind. You want to, the moment you write the definitive book of how the Holy Spirit is going to work every time, every way... Holy Spirit's going to mess that up. Even in our walking through the book of Acts, guess what? The Holy Spirit didn't fall on any one group exactly the same way. The Samaritans, you know, uh, was it in, uh, was it with Cornelius? I think it was Cornelius where you had Simon the sorcerer. I might get it mixed up because I'm babbling all over the map here. You remember Simon the sorcerer? Was it 8 or 10? Okay. But anyway, Simon... Huh? So it was in, yeah, it was, Samaritan, it was in Samaria. But it's interesting that Simon, the Bible says that he saw that when Peter laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Well, what did he see? What did he hear? What was something tangible? Because remember, he, wanted, he, wanted, he thought he'd pay him some money and get that same power. See, but my point is, is there was something visible and evidentiary when these individuals received the spirit. There was something that happened, that empowering that took place. All right. Last last scripture or last thing. Number 14. It is possible. And I'm using the word baptize in the Holy Spirit to tie it. Just for our teaching tonight. It is possible to be baptized, i.e. converted by the Holy Spirit, to be a genuine believer, to experience the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and yet not be filled with the Holy Spirit. I would even say not be walking with the Holy Spirit. And here's an example. 
And you read it and tell me what you think. Corinth, as you know, they had a lot of issues. Big time issues. But they were believers. I mean, you had a guy sleeping with his, what, his, was it his stepmother? Huh? Call the counselor. <laughs> I mean, you've got, I call them charismatics on steroids. Paul, but here's the thing with their spiritual gifts. Paul didn't tell them, stop it. Just stop it. No, what did he do? He gave them teaching and instruction not to kill the gift, but how to use it in a balanced, proper way. All right, preview of coming attractions. But I want you to notice right out of the box, if believers can be regenerated, i.e. baptized in the Spirit, but not be filled or being filled with the Holy Spirit might be correct. I think Corinth might be, well, I don't need to go to Corinth. I can just look, one, at my own life and know the seasons of carnality that I've had in my life where I haven't been walking in a filling of the Spirit in everything I've done. But notice these people were converted because Paul starts off by addressing them. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who, what, are, that means they're set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be what? Saints. With all who in every place, he's, he's connecting these Corinthians with other believers around the world who are called in every place, call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And drop down to chapter 2, verse 6. However, he's correcting them now. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. You're, you've got an immature problem. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. Verse 10. But God has revealed them to us, talking about maturity, by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him, even so no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. But the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Chapter 3. And I, brethren, talking to this group, that he just called them sanctified saints. And he said, And I, brethren, chapter 3, verse 1, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal. You're thinking, you're converted, but your thinking is not walking and being spiritual. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now, you're still not able. For you are what? Still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So I'll just end on that. So yes, you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit, but not walking in the Spirit. Not being filled with the Spirit. It's a continue to be filled with the Spirit. You can be run around the church, speak in tongues, wave a flag, I don't know, whatever it is you want to do, right? And I've seen folks do all the stuff. Good people, sincere people. But their lives were a wreck. Because they weren't walking in the Spirit. They equated the Spirit 
as this event-driven experience. And I'm not saying any of that's wrong. But yet, if it doesn't result in the fruit of the Spirit. I've known people that could speak in tongues and beat their wives. Is there a problem here, Houston? Big time. And we can argue about whether they really were, I don't know. But my point is, Paul addressed believers who were carnal in their thinking. Worldly. Ungodly. Unspiritual. We got people like that that come to this church. They come on Sunday. I'll just say it. They have a problem shacking up. Doesn't bother them one bit. Come and take communion. Worship Jesus. And defy the word of God. Is there a problem? Yeah. Are they saved? Maybe. But they're carnal. They're carnal. They're they're immature. They're immature. See, we can fall into the other trap in equating spirituality. Oh, that's where we got to walk that fine line because we can go to the other extreme and become legalist. See, that if you're not doing all this stuff, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do, right? I mean, we can, we can equate Christianity to a rigid list of behavior. Well, a real Christian wouldn't go to a PG movie. Real Christian went and watched The Sopranos. Real Christian went blah, 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 blah. Really? I don't want that job. I don't want that job. I can barely run my own life. I'm not, I can't run your life. That's why you need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to help me to get out of carnality. The Spirit. How do I understand more of God? By the Spirit of God. That makes me what? A spiritual person. The Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Set apart, but continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, sometimes people growing up would use the example, and they would take a, a vase, and they'd say, life without the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if they talk like that, but anyway. <clears throat> and they'd fill up that thing halfway of that, that jar. Now, if you want the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you need to... And they'd pour water where it just overflowed. That's not really a good example. You know what that does? That creates two classes of Christians that if you don't, you know, if you don't match my understanding of the Holy Spirit, you only got half full. I remember hearing somebody when I was growing up, and they made this statement. They'd say, just... And I, before the Lord, they'd say, boy, just imagine what Billy Graham could do if he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to say, you moron. I didn't. Because they were older than me. But that kind of thinking might be foreign to you, but some of us grew up in some of that way of thinking. And so, the better example isn't a pitcher of water. Really, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is imagine a balloon that can just expand. The more you're filled, the more you're filled. You just increase your capacity more of God. You're born again, you just got a little bit of, but you want more. The Holy Spirit will expand you as far as you're willing to go and stretch. The Holy Spirit will meet you every step of the way. The more you want of Him, He'll just keep stretching you, keep stretching you. Dying to self, giving up that carnality thinking and conforming yourself to the, 
righteousness of God. He'll just keep expanding you and keep expanding you. See, that's a better picture of the continual filling of the Holy Spirit than this half full, half empty mentality. Because every Monday morning, that jar is low. <laughs> I need expansion, not this kind. The right kind. Father, help us to walk in the Spirit. Help us, God, to, God, to not be hung up sometimes in words and terms and traditions and realize that, Lord, Lord there's such diversity in your Bible. And Lord, you're not, you don't stutter. There's not a contradiction. But, Lord, you empowered Mr. Luke with an emphasis on the Spirit and empowerment and the kingdom God, you, you inspired and encouraged and gave the Apostle Paul to teach about what it means to be set apart, who we are in Christ, that we have been baptized, immersed in Christ, that we should be walking in the fullness, continue being filled with the Holy Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, to always be wanting more and more and more of the working of your Spirit. God, they're not contradicting each other. It's both and. Help us, God, to... Lord, see the fullness of what it means, Lord, to be baptized and be filled with your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.